Today's message is entitled, How Do You Learn, How Do You Walk Confidently in Your Faith? How do you walk confidently in your faith? We're continuing through our, our series in the book of Colossians. We're trying to understand what Paul was saying to the people in the city of Colossae, the Christians in particular. And so we're reading their mail, literally. Uh, as we work through it a few verses at a time, it's a little odd the way, you know, normally you'd take a letter and you'd read all the way through it. And that's what they did. They would get, hey, we got a letter from Paul. And their church service would go as long as it took to get through the letter. They didn't go as into the depth that um, we're going in because a lot of it would have been obvious to them. The context would have been obvious to them. The details would have been, the illustrations would have been, I mean, they just would have read the letter and they would have understood a lot of it. So that's pretty cool that they had that. Now, we're 2,000 years later, a little bit can be lost in translation, and so part of my job is to help clarify some of the questions that may arise in the reading of it. Um, but my, my belief is, is very strong in this that you don't need me to understand what God wants you to understand in this, okay? The Holy Spirit teaches us, and the Bible says that in 1 John and other places. The Holy Spirit is our teacher. So he works through people that he's gifted to do different things, and sometimes it's, it's a parent, a grandparent, an uncle, an aunt. Sometimes it's a, a, a song or a, a word that somebody says to you in passing. Sometimes it's through a message or a Bible study. There's lots of different ways God speaks through people, through song, through testimony, through prayer. Um, this is just one of many ways, okay? It's a way that I get to use some of my gifts to serve you, and, and just like you use the gifts God has given you to serve other people in his name, and that's just as important, if not more so. Um, mine just happens to be up front um, sometimes. So um, with that said, uh, I want to pray, and then we'll, we'll dive in, okay? Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for your word. Um, your word speaks because your spirit is all over it. Because they are words that are nothing but true. They reveal your heart and your passions. They reveal your person and your plan for us, um, but not just for us, for your world that you created. And Lord, we get to, we get, as followers of Christ, we get to be a part of living that out and sharing that with others. But to do that and to do that with confidence, we need to understand who it is we're believing in and what they've done that we believe they did. So we need you to clarify and drive deep into our hearts and psyches what that is, who that is. And I pray you'll help me with, uh, through your word and your spirit do that for your people, whether they're in the room or not. Because, Lord, I know that your number one choice way to work is through imperfect people like me. Thank you for the privilege. May I be found faithful. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So I am going to start reading. I'm going to read a few verses before. We're going to work through 11 through 15 in detail. I'm going to read 6 and 7 again because it implies the question that I've asked which is how do we walk confidently in our faith? I was reading through Exodus this week. Um, the early chapters are, are Moses and the burning bush. You know, a lot of people have heard of the burning bush, even if you've never read a Bible. And, and, and Moses 
sees a bush that burns but doesn't burn up and he goes over and investigates and God speaks from the bush and there's this conversation that goes on and Jesus talks about it as if it literally happened so I treat it literally as well. I don't think there's any reason why we have to see it as figurative or, or, or allegorical or anything like that. And God basically tells Moses, I want you to go back to Egypt which is where you've come from 40 years later. He's, he's, in, you know, he's been out for 40 years. I want you to go back to Egypt and I want you to lead my people out. My people are enslaved. I've heard their cry. I want you to lead them out. And this is one of the most basic stories to understand from the Old Testament that there is because so many times in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, they refer back to the Exodus. They refer back to Moses leading the people out, basically leading deliverance because it's a picture of our deliverance. It's a foreshadowing. And Moses gives reason after reason after reason to God why he shouldn't. Now, I, I, that's, that's, that's some audacity to tell God why you shouldn't do something, okay? Over and over after God tells you, I'm going to be with you, I'm going to give you this, I'm going to give you that. Basically, here's this superpower, here's this superpower, here's this really cool trick. I'm going to be with you, and okay, if you really are, I'm going to give you your brother too. Not that he's going to be any help, but he'll be there. And, and then Moses ends all his excuses. Finally, he just throws up his hands and goes, God, could you please just send somebody else? And that's almost literally what he says. It is that I do not want to do what you're asking me to do. Now, we know Moses as this giant of the faith, right? This giver of the law who, who literally God passes right in front of him and, and shows himself to Moses in a way he's never shown to anybody else before, but prior to the, you know, prior to the fall with Adam and Eve. He's called uh, like the most humble man ever. He leads them through the, the dividing of the Red Sea and leads... An, a million plus people through on dry ground. He sees manna fall from heaven for 40 years and he prays things that happen because he prays them. We're talking about somebody who had and manifests some incredible faith over the years. And yet, you look at the way he started it and here's someone who doubted and was afraid. Who did not have confidence in his faith. He had faith, he's talking to God. Didn't take much to talk to him if you could hear him, but he was talking with God and, and he was raised to believe in God, right? Remember, he was nursed by his own mother, even though Pharaoh, Pharaoh's princess found him. She sent with Miriam back to mom. God sovereignly worked there to, to get Moses to grow up under the teaching of the Hebrew story until he's old enough to be weaned and go and live in the court of, of Pharaoh with the knowledge Okay, moms, those first years, they're critical. What you teach, what you model, critical, moms and dads. And so Moses had that opportunity even though he was raised in the palace. But he did not have confident faith. And this, he would have been about 80 years old at the time he ran into the burning bush. 40 years in Egypt, then he runs for his life. 40 years in the wilderness as a shepherd. And then marks the beginning of his last 40 years as he leads Israel out. But he did not have the confident faith. I just, just a guess, but I'm thinking that maybe you and I struggle with confidence in our walk with Christ too. And 
week after week after week, right? We stand up here and we say, we need to follow Christ and lead others to follow us as we follow Christ. And, and I know every week y'all are sitting out there going, yeah, right. I don't want to lead anybody anywhere because, you know, Darren, you don't know where I go and what I do and how I live. And I don't have any confidence in what I'm doing. And yet God says, lead, invite people to follow you as you follow him. So it's, it's a good question to ask. How do we follow God with confidence? How do we walk in faith and confidence? And Paul is going to give us the ammunition needed to answer this question. He is going to tell us, basically, he's already told us, you need to know who you believe. And today he's going to drill down on, you need to know and, and have confidence in what you believe about who you believe. In Roman, I mean, Colossians chapter 1, 15 through 20, we've reread it several weeks in a row. I won't do it today, but that Christological passage, 15 through 20, where it talks about who Christ is, that's who we believe. That's who we trust. That's who we follow because of who he is, God in the flesh. He came down so that he could reveal himself to us in, in the most vivid terms possible, a living life and someone who was willing to give that life up. That's what Jesus came to do, to show us what God looks like. What does it look like to follow God fully and faithfully? Look at the life of Jesus. Look at the death of Jesus, and you will follow. You will see, okay? But then there's also this, well, what do I do with that? What, what did he do that I also need to know about and trust in? That's what we're going to focus on today. And it's basically the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, okay? It's not just the life of Christ. Now, he did live the life we couldn't live, right? He, he walked. Um, he was tempted as we are and yet did not sin, which qualified him for the cross, right? You can't die for the sins of the world if you've sinned. And, and Jesus didn't sin, and therefore he was the only one qualified. So we're going to pick it up here. I'm going to read 6 and 7, which is the implication of the question, then I'm going to jump to uh, verse um, I'll, verse, I'll go to verse 11. So 6 and 7 says, So then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your life in him. Remember, we asked the question, how do I do that with confidence? And he's going to describe that confidence. Continue to live. What does that look like? Continue to live your life rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. So those are the ingredients. If you want to know what does it look like for someone to walk with confidence, there's the description. But the rest of the passage doesn't give us any more of that. It just describes what Jesus did and why that should transform our faith and give us a rock-solid confidence that Jesus is who he said he is and he's going to do all he's promised to do. Okay, so here, what did he do? Look at verses 11 through 15 with me. In him, okay, that's in Christ, in him, you, who's you? You are the people he's writing to, Christians in the city of Colossae, and it'll be passed on to those Christians in Laodicea, so the church. In him, you, the church, Christians, were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. Stop. Okay? This is the first of the three parts. Now, if you want to make a guy cringe, just talk about circumcision, okay? And he will squirm and wiggle and, because there's not many words that make us do that more than that word. Why and what in the world is Paul doing with this here? 
Why is this here? Is he not, he's clearly not talking about literal, physical, surgical process of removing a piece of flesh from the male. Okay? He's not talking about that. But he's referring back to when he did talk about it physically. Okay? And that goes back 1,800 years before this, so 4,800 years ago, when Abraham walked on earth. And God, in Genesis 17, we can read about it. God said to Abraham, in the wake of telling Abraham, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless those who bless you. I'm going to curse those who curse you. You're going to be a blessing to the nations. I'm going to give you a, a land, a promise. And all of that I'm going to do. And, and then he says, and I want to mark your people as the people I'm going to do this for. Because I'm only going to do this for one people, initially. Because I want to bless the rest of the world through that people. In other words, I'm going to bless you because that's a blast. I love blessing people. But I'm not going to keep it all to myself. I'm going to bless the rest of the world through your people. That's basically the Old Testament, right? Blessed to be a blessing. And so in 17, God tells Abraham to do something I don't think I could have done, honestly. And he says, I want you to circumcise yourself and all your people and that was probably a couple, 300 people that were the tribe that was Abraham and his family, extended family, employees, slaves, you name it. If you were part of, making, of the money-making venture that was Abraham and his family, you got circumcised if you were a male. Sorry, ladies. And he did it. He obeyed God. This was characteristic of Abraham. He obeyed God completely, and he obeyed God promptly. I'm just telling you, I would have failed. So he did that, and that's described in, in Genesis 17. Paul is referring to that, as any good Jew would who knows his Bible like Paul does, to say that was foreshadowing something. That was foreshadowing a surgery that was going to happen on the human heart. And I don't mean physical surgery, I'm talking about spiritual surgery. And he uses this throughout the New Testament where he talks about having our hearts circumcised. And you probably have seen that in the Bible going, what in the world how do you circumcise a heart? I don't even know what circumcision is. And you just read, and you just, over the years, you just read over it. And you're like, I don't know what it means. And that's kind of what I've always done too. But I, you know, I got to preach it. So I guess I better learn and figure it out. So I figured it out and looked and read and got some help. And basically, this is it's spiritually trying to tell us something. Circumcision is a picture of the cross. Circumcision of the heart is the cruciform way. It is to live the way of the cross. It's to pick up your cross daily and follow me. Well, what does the cross symbolize? It symbolizes suffering and a willingness to suffer for Christ. For the name of Christ, it's willing to die for Christ in the, in the course of living for Christ. Dying, willing to die for Christ, suffer for Christ and with Christ as you live for Christ. It's all of those things. So as I'm following Christ and I'm inviting others to do the same, it means that I could be in the midst of suffering myself. In fact, we're all suffering from something, Okay? right? Otherwise, why would we complain? I mean, some of us are suffering from the terrible drivers in South Carolina, okay? I mean, that's just, we're probably all suffering from that unless you're not driving. And even if you're riding as a passenger, you have some words for people. But we're not suffering from just that. We're suffering from all kinds of mental, physical, emotional anguish, right? Grief and, and chronic pain and, and ow, I hit my finger with a, a hammer and everything in between. We're suffering, and we suffer, for basic, we, we, we suffer because of sin. Suffering is in the world because sin happened. Because when God gives us the new heaven and the new earth, there will be no more suffering. There will be no more pain. There will be no more tears. Okay? Not just because of the shampoo. There is no more pain and suffering. Okay? 
But we live in a world and a time when there is. So what do we do with that, okay? Well, some people suffer in part because they're pushing away from God. They're stiff-arming God. They're keeping him. At, they, don't want, they don't believe him. They're not living as if he's real, even if they give him lip service. They're living their lives self-controlled. They're living in the power of the flesh, which is what Paul is saying needs to be circumcised away. Okay? Another way of saying it would be if, if you're, if, okay, in the Bible, in the New Testament, when, it, when, when we talk about the heart, and we're not talking about the physical beating heart, we're talking about the seed of our emotions, our will, and our thinking. It's kind of a, a summary statement. This, this, this is where I think and feel and, and, and where I noodle and where I make my decisions, what I'm going to actually do, willful decisions, volition. So when Paul says we need our hearts circumcised, what he's saying is that we need our heart made more sensitive. We need some flesh cut away, uh, spiritual surgery cut away. What is that flesh? It is that crustiness that comes when we harden our heart against God. It's in, going back to the Exodus, it's the story of Pharaoh saying no to Moses every time Moses said, let my people go. And he said no. And then there'd be another plague and Moses would come back and do it again. And it said early on, and Pharaoh hardened his heart, and Pharaoh hardened his heart, and Pharaoh hardened his heart. And eventually it says, and God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Well, what does that mean? It means that he'd done it enough and God took over. And God's very thorough. He has patience and he has a limit. Okay? You and I harden our hearts whenever we disobey. Whenever we sin, we add a layer of crust to our heart. This is why people, and, and, and that's not just unbelievers. Unbelievers have crusty hearts too, right? This is where you know people who are really hard towards the things of God. They're just really, really hard. And, it's, and they, just, they just don't, it's, you feel like nothing can get through to them. That's that layer that needs to be surgically stripped away. Okay? And the cruciform way is allowing God to do that in your life, even though it may be painful and includes suffering. Okay. And, and while Jesus had no crustiness on his heart, he, was, he ultimately was, he was the ultimate surgery that was done on humanity so that we might find freedom in Christ. He took our place on the cross. He bore the sins that we deserved, the punishment that we deserved. And, and Paul is saying, you've got to let go of the flesh. You've got to quit walking in your own strength. Okay, This is, this is kind of confusing, right? Because our world tells us, Find your strengths and lean into them, right? Because that's just good business management practice. And actually, there's a lot of good logic in that. If, if you're really good at something, why wouldn't you do it? And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Unless, well, I don't think there's anything wrong with it, period. Okay. However, we can allow that to be what we rest in and trust in for whatever it is we want in life. That is making something good a God. Okay? And, and sometimes we just do that in how we carry ourselves. We walk with confidence. We walk with swagger. We walk with, you know, because we've got, maybe we're in a season of life where things are clicking and we've got it, it looks like to everybody else, we've got it together and they're telling us so. And the chest goes out a little bit further and we're like patting ourselves on the back. And, and, and you know, things can happen that way. Things can go that way in life. And, and what Paul is saying to you right now is he's saying, be careful because that's not sustainable. It's not sustainable. 
And, and that's a good thing because God allows things to happen in our lives that remind us that we are weak, we are fragile, that we are vulnerable. And we need to know that because where is God's strength made perfect? In our weakness. Because when I'm weak, then I reach out to God and say, okay, I can't. And he's like, I know. <laughs> I was just waiting on you to, to catch up with me. No, you can't. But we can, he says. We can. And we can do more together than you can do by yourself on your best day. Okay? And Paul is saying that requires a willingness to embrace the suffering in your life. The cross. Paul says, you can't just believe that Jesus is the creator and that he's done all these amazing things. You need to remember that and believe that he died in your place so that he could be your strength, so that he could be your salvation. Though we were dead in sin, dead means I can do nothing about it. It means I am totally at the mercy of God to find life. You realize that, right? If you have life in Christ, it is totally because he chose to step in and rescue you. Okay? Now, you still have a role to play, but your role does not even have a shot until he moves. God initiates salvation. He did it with Adam and Eve in the garden when he went looking for them. And he does it in salvation today when he gives us the faith to believe in the first place. But he wants to open our eyes and he uses circumstances, painful circumstances oftentimes, to get our attention. Some of us, we just need little bits along the way. Some of us need a tr just a huge trauma to get our attention. And God uses that. And Paul is saying the circumcision is a picture of the cross and the cruciform way of life. And then he moves on and he says, he moves on to the next picture. Having been buried with him in baptism having been buried with Christ in baptism, okay? Every time we have our set up our baptism tank over here, um, if you don't know, we baptize by immersion. And immersion is the literal definition of the word baptize in the Greek, baptizo, okay? And we, we lower them into the water and raise them up. And based on the verses in Romans 6, I think it's 1 through 4, whenever I baptize someone, I loosely translate that by saying buried together with Christ raised to walk a new life with him and so I, as I'm lowering them into the watery grave it's what it's a picture of I'm saying buried together with Christ implying they're dead we've died with Christ I am crucified with Christ therefore I no longer live yet Christ lives in me Paul says we have all been crucified we've died to what the flesh we've died to the selfish self the corrupted nature that is humanity. It's the problem. It's the incurable disease that we're all born with. We're born sinners. That's why we sin. And that has been happening since Adam and Eve made the conscious decision to disobey God and sin entered the world. And then ever since then, anyone born with the seed of Adam is born a sinner. Which is why Jesus was not born a sinner because he wasn't born from the seed of Adam but the seed of the Holy Spirit. Okay? Virgin birth matters. Okay, so we look buried together with Christ, raised to walk a new life with him. So we're resurrected with him too, and he's going to get to that. Because these are basically, the, this is the one, two, three of what is the gospel? What is the good news? That we were dead, buried, and he brought us and made us alive with Christ. Even though we deserve to stay dead and buried. Okay, and the reason that we can be raised to life is because he was willing to be made dead and be buried and he did that. And that's the life of Christ that we read about in the Gospels. So he says, 
Um, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him. There's the, he goes to the resurrection briefly. Through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Through your faith. It's still your faith that saves. It's still your faith and my faith that gives us the ability to walk with confidence. We still have to exercise it. Now, of course, I, and I love to remind us of this. Jesus said it just takes the faith the size of a mustard seed, which was the smallest seed in the, in, at that time in the Middle East. So they would have understood that. The people listening would have been, oh, that's a tiny seed. He says, it just takes that much faith to move a mountain. And his point is, your faith may be small, but your God is very, very big. And when you put that little bit in an infinite God, you have enough to do. There's no limit. There's no limit. And we think of a mountain as, I can't do that. That's too big. And God's like, not for me. I mean, I made that mountain so I can move it. I've moved it before. <laughs> you know, when I did that flood thing and rearranged the planet. <laughs> yeah, I can do that again. And I'm going to, when I remake and make a new earth and a new heaven, I'll use fire that time, but I can do it. I can move things around. So just a little bit of faith in that God will help me probably handle the things that you're going through right now, for sure. We just forget that or don't believe that. And this is the crisis of faith that we face whenever things get hard, right? We, that crisis of faith occurs and we have to decide, am I going to harden my heart against God and become bitter or am I going to brace the, the suffering, believing it's redemptive and get better? It's your choice, right? We have a choice in this. We have some say in this. Will I exercise the faith God has given me or will I just say no and push him away and have a pity party and make it all about me? There's no confidence in that faith. There's no confidence in that. So then he continues, verse 13 and 14. When we were dead in our sins. Notice it's past tense. When we were dead. He's writing to Christians. You're not dead anymore, Christian. Follower of Christ. Born again in Christ. Faith in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation. You are alive in Christ starting now. Eternal life started when you said I do to Christ. We were dead in, you were dead when you were dead in your sins. And in the uncircumcision of your flesh. Uncrucified. You hadn't. When you were just dead in your sin, God made you alive with Christ. He did it. He did the work. He does conversion. He does transformation. He does regeneration. All these are Bible words. You know, that regeneration, we don't hear that one much. Titus 3, 5. He regenerates us. Okay? God does the work. He's the one. He is life. God is life. First John God is life, God is light, God is love. All of those are the key things in 1 John. He is life. And so if he is life, then of course he can create life, he can sustain life, and yes, he has every right to take life. And anytime he takes it, he is just in doing so because he's holy. God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. Okay? Who's us? He forgave those who trust him and who went to him and believed that through the cross, our sins have been paid for. I don't have to die for my sins if somebody else did, right? Why would I die for my sins? Why would I choose to do that if somebody said, I got you? Now, he probably didn't say it exactly like that, but Jesus did go to the cross in my place for my sins and yours. Past, present, yeah, and even the future ones. We, we realize the forgiveness when we go to him and say, I confess. 
If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1, 9. He reminds us of that. He forgave us of all our sins, having canceled the charge. Now we're getting into banking financial terms. He canceling the charge of our legal indebtedness. Will you please pull out your invoice? Have you paid it off yet? I, I don't know if you have enough in your app. You might need to load up a little more. Mine says a billion. I think it's a billion. I don't know. There's a lot of zeros there. There might be a trillion. I don't know. It's is way more than I can afford to pay. Anybody want to pick up? The, you know, I'm the, I'm the pastor, right? Why don't you come and pay for my tip here? Right? No. There's paying this, right? And you can't pay. You know, okay, we could have made it trillion, we could have made it gazillion, I don't know how many zeros that is, but right, the point is, we all have a, a spiritual invoice that no one can afford to pay off, but somebody has already offered to pay off, and has already paid it, you just have to receive it, okay, and that's what Jesus did on the cross. Jesus' life is worth more than any number you can write on a piece of paper with as many zeros as you have. You can't write enough zeros behind a one and get to the value of the life of Christ because he's the creator. And the creator said, I'm going to die. The king said, I'm going to die for my citizens, for my people, so they can live for me. End of the service for those who choose to do so. Is we're going to, during the singing and the Lord's Supper and the offering boxes and prayer boxes, is I'm going to give you the opportunity to bring this down here and take this stamp, there's one on there, that stool too, and you can pull it out, and you're just going to go, and just push down on there, mine's paid for, and yours can be too, and you don't have to do this to get it paid for, even though it's not really the blood of Christ, but red is appropriate. Because he did that for you. And this would be a great rem reminder to have in your Bible or on your refrigerator or wherever you stick things to remember. Be a great reminder that when you start beating yourself up over your sin, uh-uh. When the enemy comes at you and starts condemning you for your sin, you go, uh-uh. It's already paid for. I'm forgiven and I'm believing that I'm forgiven. You see, this is how we're able to walk with confidence in our faith. When we believe things that are real and true, like the things that really matter. Okay? That Christ really lived on this planet, that he really died on the cross, that he really was buried in a tomb, and that he really rose from the dead, physically, literally, eternally. And that. It doesn't matter
life. It means he's the source and sustainer of life. When I believe that he is the way and, and those things, that, that orients everything I do in a way that is totally different than what the world teaches. So then he ends up with this. He goes, um, so uh, he forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us, and rightly so, by the way. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. It's nailed to the cross. And he's saying, I'm making the connection that this is paid through that. Through what happened 2,000 years ago on that. This is possible only because the only person that ever could do that and it make a difference did that. And that was Jesus' love for his father that was so great that he obeyed his father even unto death. Even though he didn't deserve it. The only one who ever lived that didn't deserve it took it. And then he ends with this. And this is a... This is a it feels a little crazy, this verse, verse 15, a little bit. So Paul wrote this in the day when they were in the Roman Empire, okay? The Colossian, the city of Colossae was part of the Roman Empire. It was one of the many cities in the Roman Empire as it was expanding and growing. And the way the Roman Empire expanded was by conquest. They'd go and fight and conquer another king and they would go, and sometimes they'd be gone for years, and sometimes they had some battles over here. I don't know if they did more than one, probably more than one at a time. And what would happen is they would finish a campaign, and then they would march back to the city of Rome. And they would send you know, messengers ahead to let them know, hey, we're coming, we're going to get there on this day, make sure everybody's ready. And what that meant was get ready for the parade. And people would show up on the day of the parade, and they'd be wearing white, and they'd be, it'd be like a, a festival, a party. They're, you know, everything from, I mean, just, just doing, they're doing crazy things because it's a holiday. Because why? Because the army's coming back. And, of course, that means all kinds of family reunions. If they're coming back, that means they won. And with the victory comes the spoils of war. Okay. And so in comes the, the, the army, uh, the, the, the whole Roman army, and for three days, the parade goes on for three days. This is a lot of people, and this is a lot of spoils. And they brought everything through. I mean, they, didn't, they just came right off the road and just kept right on going through the whole city. And they're displaying everything. They're displaying the, the, the leaders, all the legion, leaders of the legions are on their horses and they're proud and their armor has been cleaned and shined. And they're riding on their horses with their chins up and their chests out as victors. And their troops are behind them in formation and they're, they're happy and they're celebrating, they're laughing and they're, they're, their personal spoils are on them probably to some degree. And, and so there's all that. And then there's all the other gold and silver and trophies of all different kinds that are being pulled in wagons behind them. And then comes the king of the nation or nations they conquered. And he's in chains and he's walking and he's begging for mercy, humiliated, knowing that his life is forfeit. It's just a matter of when. And all of the captives that will become slaves in the Roman Empire are following chained and then at some point and, and so through, and as part of this parade is of course all those soldiers who fought 
and all their families get to win and get some of the spoils as a result of those soldiers' efforts for three days. And Paul uses that imagery when he writes this verse. And having disarmed the powers and authorities. Who are the the armies? Who who is is Jesus disarmed? The powers and authorities. He's referring to Satan and his legion of demons. His legions of demons. They have been disarmed by Christ. And he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. So Jesus won the battle, but he didn't use a sword. He used his body in surrender. And yet he won the battle. He surrendered and won. Isn't that crazy? This is where we in America have to be careful as Christians. Because we want to win the culture war, don't we? We want the culture to be more like Christ. But if we fight like Christ, it's not going to happen through power plays. I'm not saying we don't do practical things like, you know, run for office and vote for the right judges and people who will vote for good judges. I'm not saying not do those things. I'm saying that's not how, it's, that's not how you win the battle that matters to God ultimately. It's done through surrender. It's done through weakness. And until we figure that out, we're going to keep banging our heads against the wall. Okay? And I can't control what the political parties do, and I can't control what our governments do. I can influence them a little bit, but I can control how I respond to the things that are happening in our culture. I can choose how I respond, and you can choose how you respond. And when we look at life through this lens... We can walk with not just faith, but confident faith that says, I know who I believe in, and I know what he has done, and therefore I know who I am and what I get to do as a result of that identity I have in Christ. And it changes everything about how we live. And you are able, it it gives you the ability to have no power and have complete confidence. Not in yourself but in the one who gives you what you need to do what he's called you to do. And then he takes us home. Then we really get to have fun. That's when it really, really gets good. But we have to decide whether or not we believe that or whether we believe this world is all there is or whether we believe this is the most important reality. It is not. It is not. So you can live confidently. You can live boldly in that faith that God has given you. It's a choice we make. It starts with believing that he paid it all. And therefore, to live as Christ is, uh, to live as Christ, die as Christ is gain. How's it going? Why am I drawing a blank on that verse? Of all verses, right? To live as Christ, to die is gain. To live as Christ, to die is more of Christ. Is another way of thinking about it. So we're gonna, I'm going to go ahead and invite the musicians up. I'm going to pray here in a second. Um, and uh, those that are serving the Lord's Supper... Obviously, today's about the cross, but it's also about the, it's also about the, it's not just about the death. It's about the burial and the resurrection, okay? Every Sunday is about these things, okay? But today, Paul makes it crystal clear that you and I are not going to have confidence out faith if it's not in the things that matter most, and these are those things, okay? And so, um, the stamps will be here on the stools, 
And, uh, but if you'll come for the Lord's Supper, you just come down the center aisles and peel out to the left or the right, and you can uh, go to, and, and take a piece of bread and a, and a cup of juice. Now, who's this for? It's for anybody who follows Christ. Whether you started today or whether you started 10 years ago, it doesn't matter. If you know Christ, you have a relationship with him, and you've dealt with the sin in your life, you've confessed the sin in your life, then come and celebrate what made that possible. Some of you need to write your sins on here. Don't put your name on here. And you need to, you, you might need to take it and throw it in the fireplace. You might need to tuck it in your Bible as a reminder. You might need to run it through the shredder. I don't know what you need to do. You know, but you need to deal with the sins that you're having trouble dealing with. And this is just a little tangible way to do that. You don't have to do this. You can do it another way. My point is deal with it. You don't have control over so much. You have control over this. Surrender. Victory through surrender. Find it in you to humble yourself enough to do that. It will be good for you. It will bring victory in your life. It will be good for your family. It will bring victory to them. And on and on and on. It will ripple through our culture. And we may lose the American culture war. Probably will. Okay? But we won't lose the war that matters for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you uh, for sending your son. For me, I sure needed him. I need his, his salvation. I need his forgiveness. I need his taking my place for my sins on the cross. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you for dying for my brothers and sisters in Christ. So that we could live for you. I pray that we would sort it out and get real about our faith, that we would stop playing church, stop pretending we're religious, and drop the facade and the pretense and just be real with you about who we are and who you are. And Lord, I pray by your grace through faith that you will close the gap between where we are and where you are so that we might walk in confident faith because of what you've done and who you are. We ask it in Jesus' name.